I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. This week, it's the murder of Joanne Nelson. Another Joanne. Another Joanne. So this is the second Joanne or Joanna that we've done. Mm-hmm. And there's a third one in draft at the moment, which I realised after I started writing it. I was like, so this is a very familiar name. Either you've got something about the name Joanne or Joanna, or there is um, a high... Murder high, rate. There's so... a higher murder rate than average. Higher than average murder rate for people called Joanna Joanna. So yes. if your name is Joanne or Joanna... Um, maybe change it. <laughs> or maybe Google knows so much about me that Google is obviously giving me searches and going, oh, he wants to know about murders in the UK. He's obviously very keen on the Joanne murders and the yes. Joanna murders. Let's give him another one of them. Yeah. Yes. Maybe. I'm sure we'll get around it. I'm sure, we'll, sure. Get around we'll find it, it eventually. This would be an interesting dissertation topic. What, the murders of the Joanne? predominance of Joanne's <laughs> murder <laughs> topics. <laughs> I don't think it's any more prominent than anything else so. I suppose if we do enough of these we can do a statistical analysis we could do statistical Ooh. analysis <laughs> say that after a few drinks <laughs> what did you think of this story before we launch into it um well I think yeah, obviously me and the true crime thing mm. it will make me so sad it's just such a, a horrible waste and you know it makes me hate men yeah <laughs> it is it is another twat of a man it being is. the murderer unfortunately it is, it is another alert. one of those ones where it's yeah spoiler alert where you say it's yeah a bloke who can't control his temper what i liked about this one is the way that he was caught um and what led yes. to him being caught i thought was quite good yes right let's launch into the murder of joanne nelson we can thank jeffrey chaucer and his social circle for valentine's day being associated with romantic love Back in the 14th century, they helped popularise the tradition of courtly love, a concept of love that emphasised nobility and chivalry. Examples of this include knights going on adventures and the performance of various deeds for ladies. Oh, wonderful days. (laughs) I I always wanted to wear one of those big pointy hats with the little scarf coming out the top. I know the ones. Yeah. Yeah. You you have to be a princess for that, don't you? Yeah. Or at the very least, a lady. A lady. (laughs) A lady. A lady. Do you reckon Sir Walter Raleigh's puddle covering counts there? Probably, yes. Yeah, But for those that don't know that story, apparently Sir Walter Raleigh laid his cloak over a muddy puddle to prevent Queen Elizabeth I from getting her feet wet. Yeah. I don't think it would have worked on the whole wetness thing, but maybe on the dirt. Maybe on the dirt. It just seemed a bit of a knobby thing to do, really. Although, if her shoes were satin, as we discussed recently about satin shoes. Did we? Oh. Was that me? Was that another podcast person? That, that was our other podcast. In 2020, of course, Valentine's Day is instead associated with commercialism, overpriced flowers and the inability to book a table at a decent restaurant. Can you tell who wrote this one? I was going to say, and I wonder who wrote that. (laughs) As an aside, because 14th of February is considered Valentine's Day, which is very much for women, apparently, what are your thoughts on the 14th of March, a month later? It's like a blowjob day. Obviously, heaven forbid, men should be left out of things. Well, Valentine's Day is not just for women. No, I know, but commercially, it's very much aimed at women. Well, I don't know. You get a card for Valentine's Day. Mm. If we go out for a nice meal for Valentine's Day, then do you or do you not eat food? Yes. So, who's it for? For the women, obviously. We just discussed this. (laughs) (laughs) Pay attention. I, I do think it's very commercial and I do think it's very aimed at women. Although men obviously get the advantage. 
But I think there is a lot of women that want to be taken out and wind up. I mean, we go out and, and eat and do things as a couple all the time anyway. So yeah. maybe we're different. Anyway, maybe. 14th of March, just put it in your diary. Darling. 14th of March. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> on Valentine's Day 2005, though, love, hearts and flowers were the last thing on the mind of Paul Dyson. That was the evening that the 31-year-old fought with his 22-year-old fiance, job centre worker Joanne Nelson, over housework. Of all things. Bit of an age difference there. A little bit, yeah. Mm. The couple met when Dyson was 27 and John was 19. And despite the age gap, they had soon moved in together to a home in Hotton Road, North Hull, and they were planning to marry. Despite being several years his junior, Joanne worked in a flourishing career and had a large circle of friends. Dyson, in comparison, had struggled to hold down a variety of low-paid jobs and by now worked as a wood machinist. Joanne also had dreams of travelling the world, and this, along with the domestic housework, was the source of many of their arguments. A talented sportswoman, John was good at netball, rounders and swimming. She had been accepted by voluntary service overseas to work in Ghana, and had also begun training to be a nurse, but she admitted that she found it too emotional to continue, returning from the hospital sobbing at the plight of sick patients. I must say... Nurses in general, I mean, they get paid a pittance and the amount of hard work they do, oh, but know. the heartbreak they must see, it just, my heart yeah. goes out to all I of them. I know, I can't believe how little they get paid for what they, they tolerate. Yeah. I mean, hearing that, you can see an imbalance already in the relationship, can't you, that she's, he's clearly punching above his weight. Yep. Just <laughs> a mere least. description, isn't it? Yeah. Just from, straight away from that. Yeah. Um, she later took up a role at the Hull Job Centre where she went out of her way to help people. Said to be the most popular girl in her circle of friends, Joanne longed for children of her own. And in Paul Dyson, the bodybuilder she had met on a night out in Hull, she believed that she had found the man to do that with. Born in Hull in August 1974 to the parents Christine and Peter Dyson, Paul Dyson had one younger sister and a half-brother. Dyson was said to be especially close to his father, who had been convicted of manslaughter in 1967 of John Dickinson during a fight in a narrow Barnsley passageway over Dickinson's alleged affair with Christine Dyson. Some years later, his father was also involved in a hit-and-run collision, which left 47-year-old dad of seven, Gordon Kell, who'd been out celebrating his silver wedding anniversary, dead. Peter Dyson had worked in Hull's city centre pubs as a doorman, and this is believed to have played a large part in influencing Paul's later choice of career. Paul Dyson was educated at the Sydney Smith Comprehensive School until he was 16, before moving to Hull College, where he achieved a diploma in civil engineering. He later obtained a national diploma in horticulture from the Bishop Burton Agricultural College. That's a bit of a weird thing, to go from civil engineering to horticulture. He comes across from reading this, obviously, this, this brief background history as someone who just can't stick to anything. Yeah, that's fair to say, I think. He spent several months in Saudi Arabia with his father whilst in his late teens, working in general maintenance and he also tried his hand working as a gardener, then as a machinist for M&K Pine in Hull, before starting work for Bayram Timber in December 2004. Dyson's passion, though, was kickboxing. At 15, he was introduced to martial arts expert Colin Allen through his father. Allen trained Dyson to brown belt standard, and in 1995, Dyson appeared at the World Kickboxing Championships as a reserve for the British team. This passion for kickboxing soon evolved into a passion for bodybuilding, and Dyson began using anabolic steroids. Oh, that's a great way to make somebody uh, even more aggressive. Yes. 
Valentine's Day that year was on a Monday. For Joanne and Dyson, it had started nicely enough with the couple swapping cards and sharing a cuddle in the morning before Dyson left for work. A friend recalls Dyson speaking to Joanne on the phone later that day. However, when Dyson returned home later that evening, Joanne was gone. It was unusual for Joanne to not tell anyone where she'd gone. So unusual, in fact, that Dyson wasted little time calling the police to report his girlfriend missing. Spending 14 minutes on the call, Dyson was asked, had there been a row? No, nothing like that, he replied. He then turned to Joanne's parents and sisters for support, weeping on her mother's shoulder and telling her how he longed for her safe return. Two days later, he was at the forefront of a TV appeal where he made a plea for her return. As he choked back sobs and wrung a handkerchief through his fingers, Dyson spoke of the deep bond of love he shared with Joanne. He tearfully appealed for Joanne to come home as he told reporters that he loved her to bits and could never hurt her. He looked every bit the ultimate broken boyfriend. Not everyone was taken in by the tears, though. Watching the performance, Detective Superintendent Ray Higgins spotted two crescent-shaped cuts on Dyson's thumbs. In a later interview with the investigation Discovery for a documentary called Faking It, Tears of a Crime, Higgins commented, quote, Dyson's television interview was very similar in many respects to the one he gave me. He stuck to the same story. Although he was very distressed and very tearful, he was also very deliberate in what he said. He continued, quote, In the interview, there were two marks on his thumbs. I knew from dealing with previous assaults and murders that involved strangulation, the first thing a victim will do is try and pull those hands away from the neck. Sometimes in doing so, they can leave a sort of crescent-shaped fingernail in the skin of the offender, and certainly in this case, the news crew zoomed in on Dyson's hands. You could quite clearly see what appeared to me to be similar crescent-shaped marks on the back of his thumbs. And we've got a photo, I'll put that up online as well. So yeah, when you look at the photograph, you can see the mark quite clearly. And I can imagine that actually, yeah, if you had somebody's hands around your throat, you would be grabbing hold of them and trying to pull them off. As Dyson stumbled over his words and threw his performance to the attending reporters, Joanne Nelson's body was lying covered with branches and hidden from view in Woodland in North Yorkshire. Dyson had killed her days earlier, strangling Joanne on the floor of their home following a row where Joanne goaded Dyson about how he couldn't even switch on the washing machine. Here's an idea. If you're a woman beating shitbag, how about laying off the steroids, which are known to make people even more angry? Twat. And also, if you are the age that he was, was he 31 at the time? Yeah. You should be able to use a fucking washing machine. Yes. I definitely learned to use a washing machine <laughs> in my late 20s. Of course. If there was an example needed of Dyson's arrogance then his actions after Joanne's murder clearly show this. After murdering Joanne, he calmly drove to his mother's house in order to borrow a garden fork. Returning from his mum's, he even took the time to stop to chat to a neighbour, mentioning that he and Joanne were planning to buy a cat and asking whether she'd had a good holiday. When the neighbour asked if Miss Nelson was alright, he replied, quote, yes, she's fine. CCTV from Sunday the 13th of February, from the store across the road from their home, clearly showed Dyson purchasing rubber gloves and bin bags. He used the bags to wrap Joanne's body up after having tied her hands and feet together with string. He secured the bags in place with tape and carried her to the car in broad daylight before driving into the countryside to dump her body. Dyson then drove 30 miles from Hull to Howden to fill up with petrol. 
Now, I looked this up on the map, Hull to Howden, because I thought it was a long way to drive for petrol. Mm -hmm. But then we stayed in Hull last year, and it really did feel like we were in the middle of nowhere, and we had to drive miles and miles to get anything, didn't it, we? It was so. bizarre. Everywhere that you wanted to go was miles away. From there, he drove to isolated woodland near Hovingham in North Yorkshire, some 75 miles away, where he carried the body around 250 yards before leaving it in a concealed dip amongst the pine trees. He then returned home and began setting up his elaborate cover-up, including getting rid of her work clothes and leaving messages on her phone. The next day, he went to work and behaved as though nothing untoward had happened. He even staged a fake conversation on the phone with Joanne in front of a friend in order to keep up the pretense. Joanne's disappearance sparked a huge police hunt, which involved hundreds of people, including police officers, volunteers and even the army. Dyson had a handful of close friends, in particular with his trainer, Colin Allen, who Dyson chose to confide in about Joanne's murder in the days following the crime. Mr Allen chose to tell Dyson's mother, who eventually told police of his admission. Now, I just realised that obviously Colin Allen is the person that he was introduced to at 15, so he probably looked on him as like a mentor. Yeah, or a father figure after he lost figure. his dad, yeah. Mm. And fair play to Colin Allen, who then, well, told Dyson's mum, didn't go to the police himself, but told Dyson's mum. I wonder why he didn't go to the police. I don't know, it's a difficult one. Maybe he... No, I don't know. I honestly don't know why he didn't. But kudos to Dyson's mother for going straight forward, because you hear of a lot of mothers who cover up yeah. for um, their children's crimes. If my children are listening, I'm not covering up for you. If you murder someone, you're on your own. Yep, absolutely. Dyson was arrested four days later after the TV appeal. After confessing, he buried his head in his hands and wept. Quote, good God, what have I done? End quote. I hate it when they do this because, you know, I've been caught and now I'll say, good God, what have I done? Yeah. But I spent all of these other days covering up and acting yeah. normal. What have I done? You've murdered someone and then you've gone out of your way to cover it and yeah. made pretend phone calls and got In a else. completely cold-blooded manner. He claimed he could not remember where he had ditched Joanne's body, saying only that he remembered leaving her by a metal gate with some green bottles nearby. Fucking hell, that's a Bad. crap description, isn't it? Mm. He also gave a description of some distinctive trees, which police believe may have been birch, hornbeam and western hemlock. Unfortunately, all very common in North Yorkshire. Forensic analysis was carried out on Dyson's clothes, and they found a number of spores and pollen, including a type of yew which is rarely found in the north of England. Botanical maps were then used to locate where these plants grew, which in turn took the hunt north of York around Castle Howard. Detective Superintendent Ray Higgins led the six-week search for Joanne, which spread across three counties. Mr Higgins commented, When Dyson was arrested, we hoped the search for Joanne would end, but the nightmare lasted 39 days. For Joanne's family, it must have been unimaginable. Joanne touched many lives. She will not be forgotten. It was Higgins, along with Detective Constable Phil Gadd, who found Joanne's body. He found her remains in Bransby, near York just 10 miles from Castle Howard, where forensics had felt the rare type of view was from. He said, quote, We were driving round and saw this gate. It had everything. We looked at each other and said, this is it. We had a steel gate which opens outward. It's supported by two wooden posts and it had rabbit netting to each side, exactly as Dyson had described it to us, end quote. The path leading from the gate was surrounded with green bottles and led into a wooded area. Dyson had said Joanne's body was close to the entrance, but the two officers had to follow the track for around a quarter of a mile, reaching a dip in the ground. 
Mr Higgins said. The first thing I saw was the shape of a bin bag. Looking at it more closely, you could see the bin bags had been wrapped with clear tape. I realised then and there that in reality the search was over and we had found Joanne. It took police almost six weeks to find her remains. Can you imagine how the family must have felt? Especially because Joanne's sisters were called Katie and Janie and they were 19 and 16 at the time. Just because twatty bollocks couldn't tell the police where he put a body. I know. It's so cruel because at, at that point as well, he's he's admitted that he do, he's done it. What possible purpose does it serve him not saying where the, the body is? Yeah. He's already admitted it. It's not like it's going to change his sentencing in any way, shape or form, whether they have a body or not. Mm. Unless he genuinely didn't know where she was, but would you just drive randomly and get no. someone to... He must have had some vague idea of where he was going to dump the body. Otherwise, why was he driving 30 miles to get petrol and then 75 miles somewhere further out? Yeah. He must have had a vague idea of where he was going to dump her. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Dyson had a history of violence towards women. He had even attacked his ex-wife, Jenny Clark, on their wedding night. On their wedding night? Strangling her to the point of unconsciousness. He was said to beat her frequently. Divorcee Jenny, who was mum to Dyson's then five-year-old daughter, said, I knew when I first saw Joanne she'd have difficulty standing up to him. She looked the timid type. Yeah, not helpful, Jenny. I know. Well, mind you, to be strangled to the point of unconsciousness on your wedding night and then carry on with the marriage, you'd be going for an annulment at that point, wouldn't you? You'd be going on with a kick to the bollocks. But if you didn't feel up to that... you'd yeah, that's not a very good start, is it? No, and we've had this conversation and we've had it on the podcast before about people feeling they're trapped and they can't mm. leave. But stuff like that, you just think, yeah, you've got, it's only going to get worse. Mm, absolutely. Jenny continued, "Quote: He was a bully, and I hope she didn't go through hell while with him. Paul could be aggressive. The threat of violence and him losing his temper was always in the background. It's ironic that he's gone on to kill just like his father. He thought the world of him." End quote. It's not really irony, to be fair, but I get what she's saying. It makes you think more like, like father, like son. Yeah. Two men who can't control their tempers. And then yeah. him being on steroids, on steroids he still yeah, is. Exactly that. That really does not help. The Yorkshire Post revealed that Dyson had met another former girlfriend, Kerry Thompson, in 1993, while they were both attending Bishop Burton Agricultural College. She told police how during arguments he would pace up and down, hitting walls and grabbing her to stop her leaving. That is always one of the things that they say is, is one of the major warning signs of um, abuse building is when men or women, if it's the way around, whoever the aggressor is, if they start hitting walls or throwing other items or physically moving things or you, then that is the precursor to them actually starting to hit you. Is it really? Yeah. So if you're in a relationship and somebody starts hitting stuff in front of you, then it won't be long before they escalate and it actually starts being you that they hit. They're pushing the boundaries to see what you'll tolerate. That's quite scary. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that these women felt they didn't have a way out. I mean, clearly, all of them, barring Joanne, did get out. Mm. But I know of so many people in life who feel they don't have the financial stability to move away, whether that's from a physically or emotionally abusive partner or just away from an unhappy relationship. Again, we've had this conversation off the podcast, but make sure you've got a secret fund, even if it's only one that you know about, that you can access and use to move on. Yeah. If you ever need to. Secret exit fund. Secret exit fund. That's um, top tip of the week. Absolutely. And have it ideally registered to somebody else's address. So if you have parents or family who you trust, you can even have them open the account for you if you trust them, or you can open the account and have all the details registered at their address. So it's not even within your home. Um, and even if you're in quite a happy relationship, it's probably worth having that. 
Yeah. I'd also say as well that it's not always um, just the financial stability that is the problem. Um, I think people, in, especially in emotionally abusive relationships, um, the person is led to believe that they're not able to function on their own. Yeah. So even if they had the financial backing to be able to leave, they don't actually believe that they're capable of sorting out their bills and going and buying the car or doing anything. Yeah. That you know you get downtrodden to put such a point that you don't think you're capable of anything, and yeah. that is really hard to overcome. And again, we know people that have been through that where they've come out of a relationship not feeling they could do anything, mm. and you can. You you, can. You'd be amazed at how resilient you can be and. If you have to do something, yes, and there's always people out there that will guide you through it. Well, the support out there now is brilliant. So yeah. places like Women's Aid are fantastic for getting support. Mm. Um, yeah, so don't suffer, please, don't suffer. <laughs> Whilst on remand, Dyson admitted manslaughter and even slashed his wrist, scrawling "sorry" in his blood on the cell wall. It doesn't bring Joanne back though, does it, shitbag? And he clearly didn't slash them enough. The day before his trial was due to begin at Hull Crown Court, he changed his plea to guilty to murder. Paul Worsley, QC, who was prosecuting, told the court, quote, From the time he killed her, we submit Paul Dyson kept up a callous and calculated charade, telling family and police alike that he had left Joanne in bed on Valentine's Day after they had exchanged Valentine cards, and they had gone to work, only to return that evening to find her missing, end quote. Worsley went on to say, quote, He made a mistake. He confided in someone who he thought was so close a friend that he would not breach his confidence. Paul Dyson told that man that he had killed Joanne. That person contacted Dyson's mother and she, responsibly, and you may think with some courage, went to the police. It was when confronted with that that he admitted to police he had lied." The court also heard how Dyson had murderous intent and that he had made no attempt to resuscitate Joanne, did not summon help from neighbours and did not call an ambulance. Judge Tom Cracknell let me stop you there. That's a disappointing name for a judge. Certainly not as good as Mr Justice Melfall Stevenson from the Cambridge Rogers case we had. <laughs> Does that mean you can only be a judge if you've got a really super duper name? Yeah, I think so. It's got to be at least double barreled or a little bit posh. Unusual first name. Quentin Harper Smith? Yes. Okay. Yes, why not? Yeah. <laughs> if there is a Quentin Harper Smith out there, we like your name. Yes. <laughs> um, judge Tom Cracknell told Dyson he must serve 16 years in jail before being considered for parole. He went on to condemn the kickboxer for causing Joanne's family grief and torment that is scarcely imaginable, as well as criticising Dyson's decision to go on television to make an appeal for help in finding Joanne. The Nelson family issued a statement after Dyson was charged, and it breaks my heart. It read, quote, We don't feel sorry for ourselves. We feel sorry for Joanne and the life that she will miss out on. We, her parents, her sisters and all those who loved her have been cheated. Justice can never be done because Joanne can't come home. But we do consider ourselves lucky and privileged to be able to call Joanne our daughter and our sister." End quote. Joanne's funeral was held in May with around 200 mourners packing Hull crematorium. Katie Nelson, Joanne's 19-year-old younger sister, gave a moving tribute. This is another lump in the throat one. She said, Anyone who knew Joanne knew she was a wonderful person. She was fun-loving, high on life and bubbly. She was always the good one. So it's hard to understand why something like this has happened to her. She was my big sister, always looking out for me, and she taught me what was right and wrong. I didn't always take notice of her, but she was always right. And through tears, she finished, I miss you so much. I wish I could give you one last kiss, one last hug, but I will be kissing you and hugging you forever. 
In 2019, Joanne's family were horrified to hear that Dyson has now been moved to an open prison after 14 years. Joanne's sister, Katie Nelson, 33, said, quote, This man took my beautiful sister's life, thus completely destroying my parents' and my family's life. After serving only 14 of his 16-year prison sentence, he's been granted parole into an open prison for the remaining two years. An open prison is exactly that. He can come and go as he pleases, become employed and try to start a new life. This is totally unfair and unjust decision. This brought it all back again. We thought this was a ridiculously linear sentence for what he did before the murder, during and afterwards. It wasn't an accident, it wasn't a moment of rage, it was an awful, calculated crime he committed. He's now got the chance to potentially start a new life at his age, which makes us feel sick. End quote. And that's horrifying. That's, that's the worst thing about it all, is that he's going to be freed any time now. I find it really difficult, because obviously, from, from an emotional perspective, you want that punishment to fit the crime yeah you know somebody's died you you don't you know you want the person to be punished properly but then if you also believe that the whole point of jail is to rehabilitate then there has to come a point where you say okay let's rehabilitate and i suppose if you serve 14 years out of a 16 year sentence is it that different to say well 14 years in we'll start getting him used to being out in the outside world rather than just when they go don't you know end of the 16th sentence boom you're out in the world yeah I do agree with rehabilitation and I do believe that jail is there to help people overcome whatever it is that got them there. Mm. But for me, it does seem like a, a really short sentence for what yeah. he did, the premeditation in his actions after the murder. Mm. Um, and I don't believe in an eye for an eye. But, you know, he's going to come out of prison. How old is he going to be? He's going to be in his late 40s. Plenty of time to start up again. Yeah. Um, and worryingly, nothing that's going to keep him away from Hull and keep him away from the family. I must admit, it, it does. I, I do think 16 years is far too short. We know we've talked about life sentences and, and that before, and how it should be longer. Mm. And you would have thought more, more. I don't know, 25 years for a murder yeah. would seem fairer. But oh, I don't know. I suppose there's a reason why I'm not a judge. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you haven't got the right name. No, <laughs> is that what it is? All this time, that's what's holding me back. The wrong name. <laughs> that's all it is. And that is the case of the murder of Joanne Nelson. What are your thoughts? Do you think 16 years is too lenient? What do you feel about open prisons? You know, the idea that after you've served a certain portion of your sentence, you go to an open prison and gradually start being rehabilitated. And how would you feel if you were the Nelson family, knowing that Paul Dyson could be on the streets again, free, and literally living around the corner from you? Let us know by emailing us. You can reach me... Dan at sublimetruecrime.com And me, Elaine at sublimetruecrime.com Or come and join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget, if you like the podcast, please click subscribe. That way you can be the first to know when a new episode is live on Sublime Sundays. Please join us again next time for another Sublime True Crime.